Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first of four Bloomberg broadcasts on China's Belt and Road Initiative. I'm David Frieden. Today, over the next three episodes, I'll be talking to reporters who have been involved in our series about this potentially world-altering project. President Xi Jinping calls it the project of the century. It's going to be a decades-long drive to more or less grease the wheels of trade with a massive infrastructure spending program. Um, with me is Bloomberg TV's Stephen Engel, who has anchored the first of our episodes. Stephen, you call this uh, at the beginning. You you mentioned that this is uh, this is potentially an empire-building exercise. That's the question you ask, or or you then ask, is it the creation of a new world order? What is the Belt and Road Initiative? Well, it is a revival of the old Silk Route, if you want to call it uh, that. It is in much grander scale, though, uh, going to 103 different countries or international organizations everywhere from, of course, across Central Asia to Africa to Europe, uh, even to the Caribbean, uh, to the Arctic, many different places uh, that uh, need trade and need investment and that China can come in and help facilitate that. Uh, China basically says, if we want to boil it down to three main points, uh, number one, spur development, and of course, therefore, global trade. Number two, incur some goodwill. Well, we're going to talk about whether they are incurring goodwill in depth in this podcast. And number three, really promote economic integration. At a time, of course, there's dislocation, if you will, in global trade flows with the brewing trade war between China and the United States. Is China going to be looking further afield elsewhere than to its traditional number one trading partners like the EU, of course, and also the United States in particular? Uh, but there are a lot of critics of the Belt and Road Initiative. You know, already it's cost more than the Marshall Plan that uh, rebuilt uh, Europe following World War II, of course, as measured in today's dollars. It is also much grander in scope than really what has been described by many Chinese as the Chinese civilization's golden era, and that was the Tang Dynasty, where we saw the trade route uh, really flourish uh, to the west of China originally. Uh, the critics, though, say, who's going to pay for all this infrastructure? Also, how indebted will these, some of them, troubled economies, how indebted will they become when infrastructure, of course, takes years to become cash flow positive, uh, are there going to be a lot of white elephants sitting around along the new Silk Road? And is this all to accommodate an increasingly assertive superpower as it spreads its influence and, of course, its products and goods? I think that's one of the main issues, really, that that that, that part of the world is worried about. It's, yeah, I it's, saved it's that what for the, the last you know, point a, there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, and you know it's 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 the extent of China's uh, ambition, and and that ambition that was outlined by Xi Jinping. Because when he talks about the Belt of Road, Belt and Road, and when he talked about it last year, um, you know he puts it into the context of China's uh, uh, you know resurrection, if you like, its its rebirth as a as a huge uh, reclaiming power. its place rightful in place, the world. exactly rightful place. Rightful well, I tell you what interests me is, is is also looking at some of the numbers that are bandied around yeah. because Morgan Stanley's got an estimate that the whole project's going to cost one point three trillion dollars. That's T for trillion. I think that's a pretty conservative estimate. Dollars too. by twenty twenty seven. When I mean, the question is though, I suppose, um, you know, looking at looking at Belt and Road from 
China's foreign policy ambitions and also looking at China's relationship now with the United States, which is rather concerned that the Belt and Road is in fact designed to somehow question U.S. dominance in the world. How do, you, how do you look at the project when you consider what's going on with U.S.-China relations in the, uh, at the moment? I'm thinking in particular about the trade war. Well, of course, yeah, the trade war hangs over everything in between China and U.S. relations. But look at the precursors to this trade war. You had Donald Trump uh, pulling out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, not getting involved necessarily in the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, and depivoting, is that a word? Well, I'm going to use it away from Asia, if you will, as Obama did use his pivot towards Asia. So what you're seeing is China pushing forward uh, with new initiatives or or building out on this initiative that did come about in 2013 uh, and not being so reliant on the United States. And it's not surprising that we're hearing voices uh, from the United States uh, kind of discounting the eventual viability of this large, large project. Uh, 16 U.S. senators recently warning about the dangers of falling into China's debt trap. Um, You know, there's a number of different warning signals and cautionary tales already, uh, you know, surfacing. China likes to talk about how they've seen $5 trillion in trade over the first five years. But also, there's lots of debt that's been incurred. And we can go down the list from Sri Lanka to Malaysia uh, to, of course, Pakistan, Djibouti. The list is getting a little bit longer about this potential debt trap. Tell me, how is the funding going on with the Belt and Road? How is the is China actually managing the funding here? Let's look at the numbers. China state financing bodies, they've lent to date $345 billion. Commercial state banks in China, they've pledged $233 billion in loans. China-led AIIB, $100 billion plus. China's Silk Road Fund, $40 billion. That's $718 billion right there alone centered from Chinese. Real, real money. Real, real money. money from the Chinese. The World Bank, $59 billion. So is this not being led by China? Oh, absolutely this is being led well, by well, China and dominated by China. Why don't we then listen in to the, uh, the, the comments that uh, the head of the AIIB said uh, during the, uh, the first episode? It's not a program dominated by China. It's the program by which China works with other countries, working with international financial institutions, multilateral development banks. So it's kind of cooperation. Unfortunately, some people misunderstood this as a kind of China program. China wants to, to take advantage of this to promote its own interests. Which nothing could be further from the truth. Um, you've heard there from Jin Li Chun, who's the head of the AIIB, uh, talking about how actually he thinks China isn't going to be dominating these projects. Uh, Steve, there's a lot of investment that needs to be done. Um, if China's not to dominate them, well, China's certainly dominating in terms of the, of the money. But you know, do you have any sense that there's uh, a, 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 that, that these projects are you know going to be designed? hand-in-hand with the countries that actually need this infrastructure. Well, absolutely. I mean, they're trying to instill and get some goodwill from these countries that need investment. A lot of these countries are are nearing default or they have have serious uh, current account deficits. Uh, Look at Pakistan, as I mentioned there before. Uh, You know, they're on the verge of potentially getting an IMF bailout. There's fears that if they do get an IMF bailout, that money could be used 
to pay back its CPEC debt. Uh, CPEC is the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. Uh, basically, the new prime minister, uh, Mr. Khan, you know, he is trying to create jobs, create uh, investment. But the problem is, is if you look at Gwadar, uh, one of the ports there, it is dominated by the Chinese. And that's one of the biggest struggles. A lot of these countries that take the loans uh, at China's conditions, uh, they take China's investment, they take Chinese workers. And what do the local governments get uh, other than perhaps a uh, port or a facility that eventually will be handed back to China because China, the, the local governments cannot pay. And we saw that this, in Sri Lanka, right? We've seen that in Sri Lanka. They've had to hand over a majority control of this newly developed port to a Chinese state-owned enterprise to ease part of the burden, that debt burden that they've seen uh, to China. And we can one go of, into details of that if you want. And one we, of the um, one, one of the other the statistics that comes out of this report that really struck me was that out of the 70 or so countries apparently that have signed up, uh, 27% their sovereign debt is rated junk. So, you know, there is this, this, this debt trap issue. But also, I mean, considering that China has got potential uh, debt problems at home, it, it seems as if China sort of like uh, has the risk of importing debt problems by investing in these uh, projects that could potentially dodgy, right? Yeah, well, that is a concern as well with the growing escalating trade tensions with the United States simultaneously with the crackdown on over-leveraging in China. Uh, does it force China to scale back its risk appetite in these developing countries? Uh, I mean, I keep on bringing up various examples, but take, for example, uh, Djibouti in Africa. China has provided $1.4 billion in infrastructure funding, about 75% of Djibouti's GDP. Most of that came in the form of loans from the Export-Import Bank of uh, China. The fears, though, uh, this will end up like uh, in Sri Lanka, uh, that China will gain control of the Dorla counter terminal, container terminal, excuse me, and, and then also Hambantoto port in Sri Lanka, and then Gwadar in Pakistan. It's we're, we're talking about a string of pearls that China is investing in, and many of them happen to be strategic deep water ports. Well, I mean, Djibouti is actually a new Chinese base, right? Um, so it, I suppose there's the risk that they're going to turn Gwadar and maybe the port in Sri Lanka into a base. We don't know that that's not going to happen. Well, they say Gwadar, which is in, I believe, what, western Pakistan. Yes. It's, it's pretty much out in the middle of nowhere, but it's a deep water port. Yeah. And it's primarily a Chinese town right now. Mm. And we talked about uh, Imran Khan talking about building or creating, what, 10,000 or 10 million new jobs, excuse me, over the first 100 days of, of being in office. Let me get those numbers exactly right. He's talked about creating, yes, 10 million new jobs in the first 100 days in office. But one of the biggest complaints coming out of Gwadar is if you look around, you see more Chinese security agents and secu uh, soldiers and police protecting Gwadar, their investment and their port, basically, that they've invested in from what they say is potential terrorism threats uh, and, and, and various other problems. And, and people there saying it's become a little bit of a little China. Steve, I just want to end with, 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 with a little chat about where you think um, BRI is going. Because in the first five years, and let's face it, it's a pretty short period of time since it was first announced in that speech by Xi Jinping, um, we've seen a lot of projects have been labeled BRI. Mm -hmm. But I suppose now we're going to see 
you know, projects which are specifically BRI. Uh, they might be more, um, you know, the, 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 the lending covenants around those projects might be more commercial. Where do you see the project going over the next, uh, say, the next five years or beyond? What's interesting for Chinese companies, if you want to look at it from that perspective, is there have been a lot of capital controls over the last couple of years uh, that Chinese companies have had to stringently uh, abide by uh, because of the protection of the renminbi. But if you somehow make a business case that your company is investing or part of the Belt and Road, uh, you can sort of get around a lot of those rules. Uh, it's interesting, Michael Every of Rabobank, he says, being tied to Belt and Road is like in a, is a political special sauce, he says. If you drizzle it on anything, it tastes better, right? So, <laughs> so again, this is really being driven by Xi Jinping. Keep yeah. in mind, Xi Jinping has had the constitution changed. He is now a leader uh, potentially for life. This is his calling card project, and he is going to undoubtedly push this forward and try to make it a success. Already, China has signed 118 cooperation agreements with 103 countries and international organizations. Uh, they've built a number of or are in the process of building a number of high-speed railways or regular railways. But keep in mind as well, there's been pushback. Mahathir Mohamad went to Beijing, the new old, new slash old Prime yes. Minister of Malaysia, basically went to Beijing and instead of kowtowing and talking nice, he said, listen, China, this is turning out to be a new form of colonialism. And you know what? We're going to scrap that $20 billion high-speed railway project. We don't necessarily need to be beholden to the Chinese. We want to employ Malay uh, Malaysians on these projects, not bring in imported labor from China. Steve, hold that thought because uh, episode two of the program is going to uh, take us to India with Haslinda Amman, and she's Windia is one of the big uh, uh, skeptics when it comes to Belt and Road. She's also going to go to Thailand and Kazakhstan. Um, Richard Salamat in the third episode is going to uh, have a look at uh, East Africa and particular, uh, in particular Kenya. Uh, and then finally, um, Tom McKenzie, uh, who's our Beijing correspondent, will be in Europe, and he's going to talk to, uh, to the Europeans about their concerns and also what they, uh, they think about the project in general. So there's a lot coming up. Steve, thank you very much indeed for uh, speaking to me. I'm David Tweed. This has been the first in our podcast about our new Belt and Road series. You can actually catch up and see a little bit more about this with some stories and also the, the, the series uh, on Bloomberg.com. I just looked for Belt and Road. 